universities before the pandemic were, were highly reliant on um, overseas students, but and they were all decreasingly reliant on on government funding, or at least setting themselves up for a day when um, government funding would be diminished. So if you look around Australia, you'll see major capital works, construction works on all the campuses. The, so the, before the pandemic, there was already a kind of shift. Um, of funding uh, and emphasis away from ongoing kind of teaching, uh, teaching and research practice, research practices, into um, a kind of a construction of a, a physical construction of a place where students would be more like consumers than than learners, and then it was into this context that the um, pandemic arrived. So uh, universities tended to be in the middle of major investments in capital works, and these investments were kind of um the risk around these investments was always going to be managed in terms of um reduction in in payroll and um other what they call operational efficiencies so we were going into a high risk situation in the university sector anyway at least the the people working in universities where any downturn in revenue was going to result in job losses um rather than a um decline in maybe capital expenditure or a um a use of assets as a buffer during that period. So we saw at least 17,000 jobs lost last year. They're mostly uh, full-time contract positions and many more um, hours and jobs were lost for, for casual staff during that period. Um, my experience of being on a university, on an academic board, um, and seeing some of the documentation around the way that universities has been managed was was to make the realisation um, that risk in the university, financial risk in the university sector was being borne um, through payroll, through the most flexible part of the payroll. So it was really casual staff um, that bear the brunt of any short budgetary shortfall in revenue, whether that's um, less students enrolling in a, a particular course or perhaps students withdrawing from a course before um, the week the week four census date. It's really casual stuff that bear, bear the brunt. They'll either not have a contract or they'll lose hours, lose marking hours, or perhaps their contract won't even arrive before that week four census date and they may not even um, be doing the teaching that they expected to do. So that, for me, is one of the big, big problems in the university sector, that the people with the most power to make the decisions are not uh, being really hurt through any of the risks taken around these decisions. The people who are being hurt by those decisions are people with the least power to make those decisions, which are really casual staff. And you mentioned there that there have been uh, thousands of job losses around the country. Unfortunately, uh, last month's federal budget uh, may indicate even further losses given that the funding for universities was reduced by nearly 10% mm. over the next three years. It really seems like there is a bit of, a, I guess, an attack on the, uh, the higher education sector coming from the federal government, or at least a, a lack of uh, importance or significance being placed on it. Will, will this just you know, further those job losses and those uh, cuts to wages and conditions in the sector, this uh, you know, quite incredible uh, cut of 10% of funding? Yeah, it seems that um, the Howard government, Howard government policies um, from 20, 30 years ago are really being introduced now through the university sector. We, we know the Liberal Party had an intention of cutting university funding by 20%. They went to an election with that um, clearly stated a few years ago. 
um, and this 10% reduction next year plus some further reductions in the years thereafter um, result in a real cut in university funding of around 20% over the next couple of years. So that policy of reducing funding is being implemented by the government, but it's also being implemented at a time where as long as the pandemic continues every year, the revenue from overseas students is, is reducing in the university sector. And I think in the second half of this year is when universities will really feel the pinch of that um, lack, in, lack of revenue from overseas students. So from what we've seen over the last year, the way that universities will deal with this is basically by um, um, reducing, well, not renewing uh, contracts that have come up for expiry for teaching staff, but also administrative staff. Um, they'll reduce the amount of um, work done and you know an hours paid to casual staff, and they'll offer. Well, last year they offered a big series of voluntary redundancies in many institutions, but they're now at the point where they're off. Um, they'll be basically doing forced redundancies um, through the sector if if they're not doing that already. And in Western Australia, um, we've heard we heard news in the last two weeks that um, there'll be forced redundancies over at University of Western Australia in the second half of this year. And I would expect that, um, unfortunately, other universities may may follow. Now, of course, this as as you uh, the picture you're painting here has a you know, terrible impacts on on teaching staff and on on other staff at universities but of course it also has an impact on the students of these universities can can you explain to our listeners what some of these impacts may be in terms of the the quality of teaching and also just the courses available i believe that you know there have been significant cuts in particular to undergraduate courses I mean, the first casualty of the cuts in terms of opportunity to study for students has been the, the reduction in language programs across across Australia. So when this latest round of um, funding reduction was introduced by the federal government, they did it in the name of um, you know increasing strategic areas of study, such as languages. But by reducing the amount of um, government funding available to universities to teach those programs um, or you know, the total funding for those programs. Basically, universities responded in their very neoliberal way that they act today by just cutting those courses. So, for instance, Indonesian programs have disappeared from across Australia, you know, from around Australia, even though that's been a priority language um, for the government and was a reason for this cut. So, in the in the last few days, we've heard from the Minister of Education, Alan Tudge, expressing his frustration that um, you know the universities are are not doing things the way that they should, but they're very much doing them in a very predictable way. That when you cut funding for certain areas, those areas will will disappear because we have such a, a neo-liberal culture of university management these days. So. That's one of the unfortunate things for students. So their choice in terms of where they can study, where they can study certain courses is disappearing radically. Um, the other problem we've had and we've seen it over the last few months is that you know, students have had to really get out and campaign and fight to retain things such as face-to-face -face lectures on, on campus and face-to-face um, -face teaching on campus. And that's been a big struggle, particularly in Western Australia where we haven't been so impacted um, by the pandemic um, 
and and yet university management has has used this as an excuse perhaps to replay formal lectures um, to perhaps reduce the cost of um, hiring lecturers and things like that. But it's a real loss to students not to be able to, to meet, to come onto campus and attend lectures and things. I imagine that also has uh, a huge impact on the kind of student culture on campus. And I guess I just wanted to ask about that because you mentioned earlier the, you know, the sort of the Howard era uh, neoliberal policies have been implemented into universities around the country. But there, there was, you know, in the, at least in the early 2000s, there was somewhat of a fight back from both uh, students and staff uh, around uh, issues such as uh, compulsory uh, hex fees and, and so forth. There has been some activism, though, uh, in response to the most recent uh, attacks on the university sector with uh, students and staff uh, taking action, including some, uh, although limited, some strike action. Can you talk to some of the, I guess, the organising that's been going on, at least here in, in WA, and you know, what has the NTU been doing in conjunction with uh, student groups to resist these uh, attacks on, on universities? First, let me start by saying I think the, the student guilds, from what I've seen in Western Australia, at least on my own campus, have been outstanding in, um, prote- you know, in really protecting education, the quality of education for, for students. Um, I'm the branch vice president at my at my campus, and I've been working quite closely over the last two years with guild leadership to to coordinate um, campaigns to maintain quality in teaching and learning, and um, to maintain courses. Um, and to maintain internal funding within the university um, to ensure to try and ensure that goes towards teaching um, and research and doesn't just disappear into into capital works projects. Um, one of the frustrating um, prob- one of the problems we've had, I guess, in the in the NTU or in dealing this in dealing with this era is that um, we're at a at a stage where, or well, we've kind of entered in the culture where. We came into the pandemic trying to work with the university management, um, say this is mid-2020, and there was a national program that was being organised um, to basically enable universities to cut some of their salary costs um, so long as they maintained um, staffing levels and opened their books, made their books transparent, opened them up to the union so there'd be a collaborative effort to try and um, save money and get through the pandemic. The university management withdrew from that process, um, and I guess one of the opportunities that was lost to the union at that point was that the union had set out with a you know with goodwill to enter into this process of um, helping the universities to save money, but then was you know was rejected. And I think what the union's mistake was at that time they should have really became active and joined the guilds in becoming much more active on campus and running campaigns. Um, in in a refusal to do um, a lot of the overtime, free overtime that was done over the last year. Um, but instead, the NTU's really persisted in trying to work with management and collaborate with management, despite management not opening its books, not responding to freedom of information requests, despite management um, laying off so many um, staff and so many members of the NTU. And, and I think the NTU's found it hard to turn that corner from being trying to collaborate with management to becoming a kind of activist, you know, um, to get back into that antagonistic position where it really um, demands minimal standards, minimal protections from from university, rather than um, enabling the process of decline um, in you know staff numbers and enabling the process of decline in um, university courses being offered. So just from 
being an NTU representative working with the Guild, I've sensed the Guild's frustration with the NTU for not going hard enough when the Guild really wants to go in, campaign hard and fast on an issue, uh, and there's often a very narrow um, window of opportunity to do that. Um, we found that we couldn't, uh, that we, we, we would go and make a request, say, to NTU at a state level, and we just couldn't get support for those campaigns and support for those actions. So we just found that NTU has been dragging its feet um, and really unwilling and unable to to take management on university management on on, on key issues on key issues of, of protect, you know, which would protect their members I guess just finally then to the you know the situation as you've as you've described it is already quite dire for university staff and, and in some aspects university students as well but it is certainly uh, likely that it will get worse, uh, not only as the the impact of this 10% cut, uh, budget cut, uh, you know, comes to pass, but also as inevitably we head into more of an economic recession. Uh, as you mentioned, WA has been quite lucky in many respects in regard to the pandemic. However, it, it very much still seems that you know a, deeper, a deepening of the recession is looming, looming here in Australia in the next uh, few years. This will obviously have huge impacts on workers in the sector. Do you foresee that uh, you know that these challenges that you're discussing there, in terms of perhaps the you know the unwillingness of the union to to become more active and more militant? Do you foresee that they will be overcome and that there will be a bit of a resurgence of activism both within the union and the uh, student body and ensure that there is, you know, at least a bit of a fight back against uh, some of the things to come? Sure. I think there has to be change in the union. We've got a very activist um, group of members in the in the casual staff who really have got... Um, the most to lose when when these cutbacks go through, and they're also in the most precarious position. Um, but they've also been the boldest and the the keenest to take action and the people to step forward. Um, what we've seen in the NTU is a kind of a, a a division or a kind of schism break, you know, emerge between kind of the establishment way of doing established way of doing things in the NTU leadership, which is the people kind of, if you like, composing that leadership are in a less precarious position than, say, the casual staff. Um, but uh, but the leadership of the NTU is kind of dominated by that culture of kind of complacency, of petty privilege, um, and they've tended to see, from what I can tell at least, they've tended to see that um, that more active casual membership within it when it's within its ranks as a threat rather than an opportunity to to reinvigorate the union um, and take action on really obvious. Um, you know, kind of violations of, of worker rights. The, the, the thing is that casuals work on a one-hour contract. Often their contracts are not... You know, they may be starting work often without contracts at the university. Um, we know, we can see instances at our university where the work they do in marking, they may not be... You know, in some schools, they may not be paid for that marking for, say, until maybe eight or ten weeks after they've actually done that work. So um, we know that... The casual staff are taking personal loans just to kind of survive, you know, in that time period to wait for that pay to come in. Um, so rather than really trying to to protect and work the most vulnerable and work with the most vulnerable within its ranks, it's tending to um, tending to ignore them or kind of see them as a threat rather than seeing the real threat as as being really complacency in university management, where, you know, a kind of a neoliberal culture um, whereby 
NTU leadership and university management just works together in kind of managing the decline of um, universities, particularly state universities. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to turn that around, and there's certainly enough energy um, to turn that around within the NTU membership and particularly within the casual ranks because for people working as casuals, I mean, many of them have worked as casuals for years, but they, but these are people who are often looking forward to some kind of university career um, or some kind of career path into the university sector. Um, currently, there are very few opportunities for them to move from being a casual worker into a ongoing position or even to have a you know, a career at the university. Those career positions just haven't been made available by university management. Um, and I think there's a desperate there's a desperate need to change the, the way that things are being done. And that body of casual workers certainly has the interest um, to bring about a change. And I think they have the energy and they have also kind of a sense of outrage. You know, they've been abused for years and years and years and they want change. They believe in um, they're being, you know, they believe in the purpose of a state university sector, um, and I think it's time to really listen and work with the with the casual group within the membership to to change the way that universities operate.